From the Other Side with special guest Dr. Bruce Solheim. Episode 7 of the Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters podcast. It's not a good day to be a bad guy. Hello and welcome everyone to the podcast. I am your host Wayne along with my lovely co-host and wife Michelle. Hey there. Coming to you from the glacial dumping grounds known as the Michigan Basin where we cover such topics as UFOs, aliens, conspiracy theories, paranormal encounters, ghosts, the Michigan Dog Band, Bigfoot, and all things paranormal and strange in and around Michigan. Hey everyone, we're back. Hello everybody. Yeah, we took a quick break there just so we could uh, get the school year all closed out. <laughs> close, close out what I would consider quite the dumpster fire. <laughs> yeah, what a... 2020, 2021. What a crazy school year it's been. Hopefully getting back to normal next year. Can't wait for that. Yeah, resting, resting up now. <laughs> so what a crazy podcast we have today. Oh, tonight is an interesting discussion. It it was fantastic, and I can't wait to get this going. So as we add that little teaser in there for everyone to continue listening. So with that being said, I have to say a big thank you to everyone who is sharing and spreading the word about the podcast. We're just amazed by how much the podcast and the Facebook group continues to grow. It seems that there are a lot of people not only interested in UFOs in Michigan and the paranormal, but are also having sightings and encounters of their own. So that's great to hear from people and to see that people are listening to the podcast. It's uh, well, really and cool. Well, it's nice to have that local platform that people can share their stories without, you know, critical judgment of others. Yeah, absolutely. Also, on kind of riding on the coattails of that, if you have a story that you would like to tell us or something happened, a, a UFO or paranormal experience, we would love to talk to you. Please reach out to us at mi.ufo.podcast at gmail.com. If you send us a brief summary of your experience, we will contact you and discuss things further and also try to get you on the podcast. Please note we love talking and we love hearing stories. Yes, and we're, we're more than interested in, in listening and getting your story out there. So please contact us again at mi.ufo.podcast at gmail.com. This will also be listed in the show notes. So coming very soon, very excited to say that we will have our very own merchandise store where you can order all kinds of products and designs that not only helps support the podcast, but also spreads the word about the podcast. So be watching on the Facebook pages uh, for any information on that coming up. we got some really cool things. Yes, I wore one of my shirts to work. <laughs> yes, and I'm very happy with the products that we're getting from our company. So awesome, awesome job. Great artwork. And my daughter did all of the artwork for us. So uh, shout out to Abby. And uh, thank you very much for doing that artwork. So since we have a very long interview today, how about we just jump right into that time? 
It's the what's in the news time. Yes. What is in the news? So coming at some point is a show through NBC Peacock starring Demi Lovato entitled Unidentified. And there's a little bit more information during the interview with Dr. Solheim where this comes up. But it's going to be a docuseries with four episodes starring Demi Lovato, her sister, and then also a friend of hers as they go on the hunt for UFOs and aliens. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. So that's going to be one to watch for. And that's going to be on NBC Peacock. Is that like the streaming service of NBC? Yes. So yeah, keep an eye out for that. Very interesting. All right. Well, that was short and sweet. I say we jump right into shout outs. So let's get into this. Well, first we have Contact in the Desert 2021. Uh, It's going to be a virtual event held on June 25th through the 28th, but you will have over two weeks to view the event. You don't have to do it all during that time frame. So if you want more information, please check them out at contactinthedesert.com for more of those details. And coming up, a very special guest next week, and we're going to give him a shout out right now. And that is Uncharted X with Ben. Now, Ben is a longtime fan of history and puts up incredible videos on YouTube and also puts his shows in a podcast format that can be downloaded through iTunes. Uh, Ben goes to places like Peru and Egypt, and that's just a couple places that he's been looking for evidence of high technology that was being used by ancient people. So... If you're wondering about the high technology, we're going to talk about that in our episode next week. So make sure you come and check that out. It's really amazing stuff that he does. He is an incredible, dedicated, hardworking videographer that he puts things together. That's just amazing and very high quality videos. So uh, once again, that's Uncharted X. Google Uncharted X and you will find his videos on YouTube and also his podcast. And another shout out to our friends at the Midnight Truck Stop, hosted by Big T and Blue Knight. A very cool couple of guys with a great concept as they explore those strange and unexplained incidents that so many of us have experienced while traveling along desolate highways. Give them a listen as they collect stories from all around the country from truckers and travelers alike. And last but not least, a very special shout out to Mr. Terry Lovelace. We cannot thank Terry enough for being a guest on the podcast and connecting us to the people at Contact in the Desert and also our guest tonight, which is amazing, Dr. Bruce Solheim. Please help support Terry by going to his website at www.terrylovelace.com and check out his books. Incident at Devil's Den and Devil's Den The Reckoning. I cannot recommend these books enough. They will chill your spine. And you can also check out his podcast on YouTube. It's called The Devil's Den Podcast. So with that, I think it's time for a break. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Join me, George Norrie, for the Worldwide Contact in the Desert Virtual UFO Conference, June 25th to June 28th. Contact in the Desert is an epic weekend of adventure jam-packed with exciting explorations into UFOs, ancient civilizations, AI, crop circles, forbidden archaeology, disclosure, and the newest evidence of ongoing contact, sightings, and leading-edge science. This amazing weekend delivers more than 130 presentations and special events showcasing 67 speakers from all over the world, with two extra weeks to view your favorite leading experts, including Avi Loeb with Clyde Lewis, Linda Moulton Howe, Paul Hellyer, John Lear, Russell Targ, David Childress, Doc Wallach, and more. With breaking articles in the New York Times and acknowledged naval sightings, and more importantly, the new release of classified documents on the day of the soft opening of Contact in the Desert, we are your source for inside information. Join us June 25th at contactinthedesert.com to get your tickets today. Make contact, contactinthedesert.com. Well, before we get into the interview with our special guest, Dr. Bruce Solheim, let's get a little bit of background information on him. So uh, Bruce Solheim was born in Seattle, Washington, to Norwegian immigrant parents. He was the first person in his family to go to college. He served for six years in the U.S. Army as a jail guard and later as a helicopter pilot and is a disabled veteran. Bruce earned his Ph.D. in history from Bowling Green State University in 1993 and is a distinguished professor of history at Citrus College in Glendora, California. He was a Fulbright professor and scholar in 2003 at the University of Tromso in Norway. Bruce has published 12 books and has written 10 plays, six of which have been produced. The Bronze Star won two awards from the Kennedy Center American College Theater Festival. The Epiphany was commissioned by the Kingdom of Norway and funded for a full production run with the original American cast. Bruce founded the Veterans Program at Citrus College and co-founded Boots to Books, the nation's first college credit transition course for veterans. Bruce is also a co-founder of Lockdown Theater, which has produced three stream plays, online, live, and remote actors during the COVID-19 pandemic. He has published a trilogy of nonfiction paranormal books, Timeless, Timeless, Deja Vu, and Timeless, Trinity. Bruce has also published a comic book and graphic novel featuring an alien hybrid character named Snark. He has been on Coast to Coast AM several times and was a featured speaker at Contact in the Desert. He will also be part of Demi Lovato's new unidentified show on NBC Peacock. Bruce is happily married to his wife, Ginger, and has four children and two grandsons. And ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, please help us welcome Dr. Bruce Solheim. All right, everybody, welcome back. We are joined right now by the one and only Dr. Bruce Solheim. Um, And basically, I want to turn this over to him right from the beginning And so he can talk to you and introduce himself to our audience. And uh, we're going to go on a crazy journey. So, Bruce, (laughs) 
It's a, well, thank, thank you very much, both, both of you. And, and uh, it's always dangerous to hand it over to a, a professor who, you know, lectures for a living. So, but anyway, I'll, I'll try to be kind to you and the audience. Um, yeah, I've, I'm um, the son of Norwegian immigrants. Uh, I uh, was first one in my, pa my parents came over to uh, America from Norway after World War II. They both lived under Nazi occupation. Uh, my dad was in a labor camp. They had a really tough time during the war. And actually, my eldest brother, who was born in Norway during that time, died during the war. So uh, because the Germans took all the medicine. So, you know, they just had a tragic beginning to their marriage, actually, and family life. So they came to America to start over. And uh, my brother and I were born uh, in Seattle. So that's where I grew up. Uh, first one in my family to go to college, um, much less go to an insane amount of college and get a PhD in history. But along the way, I served six years in the army, three years as a jail guard, three years as a uh, helicopter pilot in the 82nd Airborne, first, first in the 17th Air Cavalry, uh, was never in combat. I feel it was kind of dumb luck because we came close several times. Um, actually loaded onto the uh, transports, ready to go, probably to invade Nicaragua or some foolhardy thing, you know, that they were planning in the 80s, uh, but never did. So I'm glad about that. Um, I did work in a, in a maximum security state prison for a while, too, which is a good way to learn about psychology, human psychology, you know, how people are, right. what they're capable of. And uh, in fact, the place where I worked, Oak Park Heights, is where they have uh, uh, Derek Chauvin right now. That's where he is because uh, it's a supermax prison now. Right. But that was a terrible place to work. Uh, but I did learn a lot. Uh, so along the way, I kept getting, you know, college credits and eventually was able to uh, go to Bowling Green State University, get a history degree and uh Started teaching part-time, worked at Boeing for six years as a defense contractor, uh, B-1 bomber project, uh, had a top secret clearance at one point. So I, I've done a lot of different things, and teaching is what I really love. But this whole time that I was doing all these things, um, paranormal things kept happening to me, and I kept writing. I've been writing since I was probably eight years old. Okay. As soon as I got a manual typewriter, my parents got me when they, they kind of knew what was up. So I started <laughs> typing and I was in high school. I, I was the only boy in my typing class. I remember that. Uh, but I enjoyed it. I love writing. So but this whole time, uh, paranormal things kept happening, but there was really no outlet for it because in the army, you can't really talk about it. People think you're nuts. You know, you got to stay on mission, stay on task. Uh, so very few people knew about my paranormal life um, at Boeing, you know, in defense contractor. You don't really talk about that stuff at work. And even in academe, where you think people are more open minded, you can't really talk about ghosts and aliens and uh, spirits and, and telepathy and telekinesis because they think that's nonsense. So um, I was really bottled up and until uh, recently, 2016. I kept having paranormal things happen to me frequently, randomly. Uh, and then in 2016, a dear friend of mine died, also grew up in Seattle, also had Norwegian immigrant parents. He died. And about a month after he died, he came to me in a vision, which 
uh, a vision for me, the way I describe it is I, I see them like I can see you guys when I'm talking to you or whatever, or whoever I'm talking to, but they're more uh, like a hologram, you know, holographic, okay. holographic image. Uh, but it's an intelligent conversation. I could ask a question he could answer. And uh, I asked what many people would ask if they were startled by seeing someone who had just died appear before them. I said, what's it like to be dead? And luckily he had a great sense of humor. His friend name is Gene. And uh, he was an actor too. So he's a very funny guy, very talented. And he laughed and he said, well, I don't feel like I'm dead, but I'm here to tell you something very important. He said, it's time for you to tell your stories. You've waited long enough. You need to start telling your stories, write your stories, publish your stories. And he even gave me the name of the book that I would write. He called it Timeless. So okay. that's the name of the book because he said, where I am, there is no future. There's no past. There's only the eternal present. It's all happening right now, all together. So we are all timeless is what he told me. So that's what I should call the book, which I did. I'm, I'm not going to argue with my friend, you know, the <laughs> ghost, right? So, so I ended up writing three books. Um, documenting 89 different experiences I've had from age four until the present, ranging from full-bodied apparition, ghosts, to uh, telepathy, telekinesis, cryptid type stuff, alien stuff, mediumship, um, you name it, I, I've had the, the experience. And uh, I, I think you know, I'm, I'm very grateful to Gene. I always mention Gene every time I talk about this, because if it wasn't for Gene, I wouldn't have written those books. We wouldn't be talking right now. I was too afraid to tell the stories. You know, I, I had tried early in my career teaching career. I thought I found a person I thought would be cool to talk about it to, an anthropology professor. She was into ancient rituals and magic and stuff. And I thought, oh, I'll so I told her about, um, an alien contact I had and <laughs> I was wrong. She was not ready for it. Oh, and wow. she just looked at me and she said, you're a pretty spacey dude, aren't you? Oh yeah. And I said, well, yeah, I guess so. And then I just put it away and I didn't talk to anybody else until 2016. So, so I really thank Gene for, for doing that. And, and there's been no, no retributions. I really had no reason to be afraid because now I have people coming up to me at, at the college, uh, other professors, they want to tell me their ghost stories or what's happened yeah, to them, sure. their UFO sightings, whatever. I'm kind of a safe harbor for that. And, uh, and the, the administration hasn't uh, gotten after me. So uh, they've actually allowed me to teach a paranormal class. Nice. I teach my regular history classes. And then in the evenings, um, I teach a paranormal personal history class. Uh, so I've been allowed to do that. So that's been very uh, rewarding. And uh, my recent book, this is the fourth paranormal book, because before I started writing these paranormal books, after I talked to Gene in 2016, I wrote typical history, political science type books, ranging from the Vietnam War to a U.S. history textbook to uh, women's leadership to uh, uh, foreign policy in the, in the Nordic region. You know, I mean, pretty you know, standard stuff. Right. So there's a real departure there. And uh, I mean, I had done some uh, uh, mixed my historical research with uh, theater. Uh, and, you know, I, I did write some plays and now six of them have been produced. So I've done that as well as the paranormal stuff. So that's a, that's kind of another topic, but um, 
I, I haven't looked back, you know, and there hasn't been any uh, negative repercussions. Um, my wife is very supportive. She's, she has had some paranormal stuff, but she's, I wouldn't say she's like a totally on board with it. You know, when I tell her, Oh, I just spoke to, you know, somebody who's deceased recently. She'll say, okay, that's great. But you know, can you come help me uh, dig a hole in the garden? You know, that kind of thing. Right. So she, she grounds me, which is very important in this whole paranormal alien UFO world to be yes. grounded. And, yes. uh, because if you're in that world the whole time, I don't know what would happen. You know, I mean, I, you just never come back to earth or whatever. So, or into this dimension. So, yeah, that's, that's one thing I've noticed. Uh, yeah. when Michelle and I had our, our experience and our sighting here in 2018, you know, uh, we didn't know what, what to make of it. Mm-hmm. And we just started a Facebook group and started accumulating people, asking them what they saw mm-hmm. today. This is a safe place for you guys. Come tell your story. Yeah. And then the next thing we know, two years later, we've got, you know, two over 2000 people in this group. Um, I was like, maybe we should start a podcast. The podcast yeah. is blowing up. It, it's uh, we got Terry, you know, Terry Lovelace, which <laughs> shout out to Terry. You know, thank you for introducing us to Bruce, because if it wasn't for Terry, we would not have uh, we would not be having this conversation right now um because he introduced us and via email and you know here you are which is great but now we're in 23 countries and i don't know i sound like your wife bruce and helping keep this guy grounded but (laughs) that's just it it's like we are being i don't want to say we're we're seeking out the knowledge of what this is going on because like Mm -hmm. you i have a background in aviation Mm -hmm. Uh, i was working toward my private pilot's license and you know how expensive that can be. But I grew up in a household um, where my dad was a pilot. He recently retired from United airlines as a captain. So from the time I can remember, I've been in airplanes Mm -hmm. flying everywhere. I remember getting a tour of a cockpit of a 747 on our way to Hawaii, you -hmm. know, as a little kid, that was awesome. I think I was like 10 or 12 years old at the time. And uh, when my dad flew for, uh, what was it, American Eagle or United, no, United Express, mm-hmm. when I would fly, he would take me on trips with them. So I would be able to either sit in a normal passenger seat or first class, which was cool because the planes weren't filled up back then like they are now, mm-hmm. or they would have me go sit in the cockpit in the rumble seat. Like, yeah. in, in, right. And I in can the sit jump there seat, yeah. in the jump seat. Thank you. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and watch everything happen. Mm-hmm. So I've, I've been around aviation and things mm-hmm. like that. And, uh, it, it's just been like being pulled along at this point. And, and I think it's very important. Something you said there about being grounded, mm-hmm. our jobs as teachers, you know, being there for the students and, 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 and being in a school and, and having those kind of jobs, I think helps us keep grounded. Yes, but, but very much so. Yeah. But it, it's also like, uh, this weird journey that we're on right now that that's kind of taken off. That's, that's brought us to Terry, to you. Um, you know, I've got other podcasters that are going to come on as guests. I mean, it's just been, 
And then, you know, as Terry said, well, welcome to the community. You're part of it now, (laughs) (laughs) you know, contact in the desert. And I think you're Mm going to be a speaker there as well. Right. Yeah. I'll be, I'm one of the speakers. And then also I'm on a panel with some, some luminaries. I don't know how I ended up on this panel, but uh, yeah, Terry's on that panel and uh, uh, Whitley, Whitley Strieber's on that panel. Yeah. Yeah. And Ralph Blumenthal, the New York Times editor guy. It's, I mean, just, I was like, you know, I'm thinking, wait a second. I think they slipped me into the wrong place, but, you know, <laughs> right. I mean, I've known Terry for a couple of years now, but, you know, he, he is really, uh, he draws a lot of attention. He has a very unique story, very oh, cool story. And he's yeah. drawn attention from not only the community, but government types too, that he yes. sometimes talks a little bit about. Yeah, uh, and I'm not last... at liberty to say, you know, let him speak for himself. But yeah. uh, he's drawn a lot of attention because of his experience happening during his time in the military and also being uh, involved with this with the intelligence agencies at the time. Right. So, right. I so think there's a lot of that. Said, uh, uh, Lou Elizondo actually spent a couple of days with him. That's what he had mentioned in mm-hmm. the interview that we did. So, you know, that that's no that's no small feat to have something like that, you know, happen, but going back to your point, I want to back up for a minute. Mm -hmm. And when you talk about being with the 82nd airborne, I was with the 101st airborne as, Mm -hmm. as a grunt. Um, But you talked about being a helicopter pilot. Are Mm -hmm. you still a pilot? Do you still fly at all? And did you have any experiences or see anything while you were flying? I, I had a paranormal experience when I was uh, flying solo, when I was still in the training helicopter. We had a, this um, Hughes 269, military calls it a TH-55. It's like a Korean War era aircraft, you know, sure. <laughs> really old uh, four-cylinder, you know, uh, gasoline engine. But um, I had a, uh, where I had a, a, a malfunction with my uh, anti-torque pedals, they got stuck. And of course, without the anti-torque pedals, you're just going to spin out of control, you know? Right. So I was able to somehow land it. It was an emergency landing, but the whole experience was so surreal because what I had to come and land anyway, because I was flying and some, uh, this horrible storm was coming in, like it was going to be a tornado. It was almost like from the wizard of Oz, you know, you could see it coming. And I thought, man, I got to get back. So I, I was quite a ways away from the airport. So I had to come back and, and then I had that malfunction with the pedals and I thought, oh, this is great. I'm going to get stuck up here. I'm not going to be able to land. I'm going to get struck by lightning or something. And uh, I was somehow able to land and it was like I was guided by a a miracle by, I I call it my guardian angel, you know, and I think that was another experience um, that, that I had. So there, there's a reason why that happened, I think. And I have to, you know, I'm always thankful for those interventions when they come. And I've had several of those in, in my life, some of them with guardian angel types, some of them with, uh, you know, alien types, you know, extraterrestrial types. So uh, most of my experiences with that have been pretty good. But yeah, that's one I can think of. Um, working in the prison was a, a it was extremely dangerous place. Uh, spe- the military prison was bad enough, but what was really bad was that maximum security prison in uh, at Oak Park Heights in Minnesota. And um, I came very close to dying. My last night I worked there, I was about to go into flight school. So I was in between my first tour of duty and my second. 
I was in the reserves and I was waiting to go to flight school, waiting for my number to come up. And uh, so I had one last night in the maximum security prison and I had some close calls with guards as well as prisoner. You know, I couldn't trust anybody as I found out. And um, I got abandoned once by a guard when the prisoners turned on me because they didn't like the way I was doing a frisk search. I was doing it the way I was taught in the military. He said, we don't do it that way here. And the next thing I know, all these prisoners are around me. And I turned to the other guard for backup and he, he, he split. Oh, I thought, wow. oh, that's the way they work around here. So I said, hey, wow. fine, go. I'm not even going to search you. And they're like, that's the way. All right. All right. That's right. the way we do it. So I thought, okay, I got to get out of here. But the last night there was a fire and I just barely survived. We pulled some people out of, out of some cells uh, with black smoke. Somebody lit their mattress on fire. So I, I think my guardian angel was at work there too. That, and uh, you know, I coughed up black things out of my lungs for a while after that. But that yeah. was my last night working in a prison, never go back. So I, I did survive, but that was a sign that, okay, that's it. But th- those are the only um, things that I can think of. I mean, other paranormal things happened while I was in the military, but not necessarily on duty. Okay. Uh, you know, ranging from ghosts and apparitions and, you know, uh, telekinesis and weird things going on. I mean, just my, that's my life, you know. Yeah. Um, nothing alien related that during that time that I can remember anyway. But uh, that was before the service and then after. Now, how far back do you remember um, having your first paranormal spirit type of interaction? Like, it was it like four years old, eight years old, yeah. somewhere in there? It was four or five. Yeah, it was in northern Norway. We were visiting my grandmother on a, on a remote island 200 miles above the Arctic Circle. So way up north, very isolated, no hospitals. I got very, very sick where I could barely move, couldn't move my head from side to side. My neck was stiff, high fever, couldn't move my arms and legs. They thought I had polio, even though I had a polio vaccine, but they, they thought I had polio. There was nothing to do. I just was lying in this little, like a day bed that my grandmother had in the kitchen because she had bad legs. So she had trouble going up and down the stairs. So she'd take a nap in that. Anyway, I was sleeping there or trying to sleep, but I was crying. Relatives came over and they were scaring the hell out of me, you know, saying, oh, this is what happened, uh, you know, when when uh, his big brother got sick and then died, you know, the next day. And oh, geez, this is what happened when Uncle Sven got polio. You know, this is what happens for polio. And I'm, I'm just crying myself to sleep. So I wake up and everybody's out of the kitchen, but I see this bright light in the ceiling like in between the beams in this old farmhouse. And the bright light was very warm and it was very reassuring. And for some reason, I just stopped crying and I didn't worry. I just said, I'm okay. I'm going to be okay. I felt like everything would be okay. Went back to sleep. When I woke up again, my grandmother and my mother were in the kitchen and I got up and I ran around and they said, oh, you're, you're fine. And, and, and my mom said, it's a miracle. And I said, yeah, I saw this bright light. And, and then my grandmother and my mother said, you know, to describe it. And they said, that's your guardian angel. Huh. So from that point on, I was a believer. I mean, I, I, I guess, you know, I was only four, four or five, maybe five at the time, but it opened up the aperture to what this was, this other dimension, not just the physical, uh, you know, subjective world, normal world that we live in. And from that point on, I just kept having paranormal experiences. They just kept coming. Yeah, it sounds like a almost like a uh, what are they near death experience? NDE. Yes. 
Yeah. Yeah. It, it's very close to a near death experience. I mean, I don't know, you know, if I, we weren't in a hospital or anything, but I would say I was extremely ill. What it was, I don't know. Some people, I've had a nurse say they thought it was uh, rheumatic fever or something. Maybe I, you know, sounded like it or maybe meningitis, you know, which is very, very serious spinal meningitis. Yeah. But for, I was cured like within a few hours, you know, within, you know, a day. So it, it was a miracle. And um, that was the beginning. And from that point on, it just stuff kept happening. I had the first alien experience. I remember extraterrestrial experience was in 1964. And it was actually it was very traumatic, but it was um, it was also a helpful experience, kind of like I was rescued. And just a long story short, we had some neighbors that lived above us. And I used to they used to babysit me when my parents went places. And I knew there was something wrong with that family. They were just weird. And the husband was really weird. He he was like one of these adults who acts like, you know, when you're a little kid and adults act like little kids, you wonder, it doesn't seem right. He was acting, you know, kind of silly and stuff. And, yeah. You know, not like a, a, a funny uncle kind of silly, but kind of like really creepy, silly. And um, he used to try to give us little Dixie cups with what he said was juice, but it smelled funny, so I didn't drink it. So there's just a lot of warning signs for me. Uh, and then he would like uh, have kids, he would go hide in a dark closet, and then he would have us come into the closet, close the door and be in there with him. And I wouldn't do it. I was too afraid, but other kids did. And this is after he gives them the little Dixie cups. You, you know where this story is going. This guy's a child molester, right? Yeah, sounds so very creepy. I had, I had this um, vision of a uh, what I now know is an extraterrestrial in my backyard between their house and my house. And he appeared there. And uh, he was scary looking. I mean, he was really tall. He had the upside down teardrop shaped head with the big slanted eyes. And he didn't tell me his name, but he said uh, that he would protect me. He said, don't go up there anymore. And I said, well, what about my parents? He said, don't worry about that. It's taken care of. You don't have to go up there anymore. Just tell your mom you're not going to go up there anymore. And I said, well, can I tell them about you, my parents about you? And they said, you could, but they probably won't believe it. Um, and I said, well, how do I know? You know, because I was suspicious even as a little kid. I, I, I said, you look pretty, pretty mean and scary, like a monster. And he looks like a normal guy. How do I know you're not the bad one? Right. And he said, you can't, but basically it comes down to, you can't judge a book by its cover. Even though I look scary, I I'm good. And he looks like a normal person, but he is evil. And you have to, and that's a lesson that I took with me from that. And, um, Oh, I do remember that, that evil man, uh, in that house, he did tell us, he said, if you tell, your parents about what's going on here. Well, first he asked us, what was the scariest thing we could think of? You know, he's kind of priming us, right? Uh, whatever they call that. Um, there's a term that they use for child molesters that do that. They uh, season their victims, you know, or whatever. Okay. So he asked us kids, he said, what's, what's the thing you're most afraid of? And I said, you know, kids are honest. So they'll say, I said, well, I go to Sunday school and I'm pretty afraid of the devil. You know, <laughs> I mean, that scares me. And then also I had trouble breathing sometimes. I had, you know, uh, like croup uh, where I would stop breathing. And um, he said, okay, well, he picked, he told each person, you know, what, you know, they told him what he was afraid of. And he told me, he said, if you tell anybody about what's going on here, um, the devil will come and make you stop breathing. So that just like 
oh no, I can't tell my parents, you know, what am I going to do? They're going to kill me. He's going to kill me or the devil's going to kill me. So this alien stepped in and said, don't worry about it. Your parents won't make you go up there anymore. So as soon as I told my mom, I don't want to go up there anymore. She said, okay, that's fine. She just, no more, no questions asked. Okay. So um, it was a rescue. And, and when I saw him in the backyard, the last time he showed me a hologram of a ship, it was a golden ship. He showed me inside of it, just a holographic image. Like I could see it. And there were other kids that were watching too, that I think he had rescued. So I think he rescued more than just me. Um, I didn't know who they were. Maybe they were from above the hill, another neighborhood, another school. Uh, but uh, that was my first experience. Um, but it was so traumatic. The, the point I want to make is it was so traumatic. Even though I was rescued, I had trouble speaking for two years. Uh, so I had a physical effect of meeting this extraterrestrial where I had to go to speech therapy to learn how to how to speak properly because I was stammering so bad I, I just wouldn't talk. Sure. And uh, they pulled me out of school for a couple hours a day. And two years later, I was able to start talking and now I talk for a living. So it's kind of ironic when you think about it. So I I consider it a good, a good trade-off. He rescued me from that evil man. I had to go through two years of speech therapy, but uh, yeah. So that was, that was the first uh, truly extraterrestrial experience I had. And I've had, you know, several others since then, but including up to including, uh, you know, what my latest book is about, uh, Ansar the Progenitor. As it turns out, Anzar the Progenitor, who I wrote this fourth paranormal book about, is an ancient alien mystic. He was the one who rescued me in 1964. I didn't know his name. I didn't know who he really was. I just knew that he that was him, and I've confirmed it now. So he's been with me my whole life, contacting me. And now I finally wrote a book just about him. I've mentioned him in the other paranormal books, but now this book is just about him. And uh, so that's that's the latest book that I've I've written, and I I'm in contact with them every time I take a meditative what I call a meditative spirit walk. Okay, I do these about three times, four times a week. I'll go on a long walk and I'll get into a meditative state, and I'll communicate with my friend Gene, my mom and dad, other relatives. Some people have special requests. You know, my uncle Harry died. Can you try to reach him? And you know, I'll do that. But I always talk to Anzar. And uh, he, he has given me some very good advice and information, which I can, I can share with you if you want. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And, and he's also giving me warnings, which are kind of scary. And, and most of those warnings have come true. So I'm not saying I'm a prophet. I'm just saying that Anzar has given me these warnings that I can give other people, not so they freak out or to cause consternation, but to help people prepare for what's going on, which I think you guys know, this paradigm shift, this what he calls a a, um, a leap of consciousness that is occurring with human beings. And some people are on board and some people are going to resist and it's going to cause a lot of turmoil. But uh, yeah, like he, for instance, he told me a year before COVID, he said there would be a series of calamities that will strike the whole world. And he said millions of people will die. And he said, there's, there's some things you can do to prevent or, or mitigate, but really it's going to, you know, it's, it's going to affect the whole world. And uh, so I was, we were pretty prepared, you know, my wife and I, because I share with her what he tells me. Um, 
then in, in September of 2020, he told me uh, that the, uh, you know, there was turmoil going on. There were riots and stuff in every city. He said, there's going to be a pocket revolution within the country. He called it a pocket revolution. And then he also said a pocket revolution or insurrection. He used the word insurrection. Now I know maybe that's politically charged, you know, depending on what people's politics are, but sure. th that is the terminology that's generally used for what happened in January. He told me this in September. I shared this with, uh, with Terry and other people that are in this group that I'm in the Ciro group, close mm -hmm. encounter resource organization. And, um, <clears throat> so I was not surprised when that happened. And uh, I mean, these are just, it's not just about prophecies or prediction. He, he always says, because he, he tells me to be careful, you know, when I'm sharing the information, because he said predictions yeah. can be wrong, but preparations are never wrong. It's okay to be prepared. It may not happen exactly the way we think it will, and it may not be as bad or it may be worse. It may not be on an exact date because, you know, that's always what I ask. Well, when is it going to happen? What exact date? Well, you know, it's variable. It could be this day. It could be that day. We have free will, you know, as people, right? So things well, can not, happen. Not only that, um, what if I throw this in here? Does time mean anything? Like, you, you know, when you were talking mm -hmm. to Gene, would time mean anything to them to in order to like for, for Anzar to make a prediction is mm -hmm. time meaningless to him. It, it, it is. And that's why they kind of, uh, you know, they shun away from giving exact dates because, you know, in which dimension, you know, is that operational, you know, that kind of thing, there's that problem. There's the problem that they, they don't have linear time. So, but uh, I think he understands the, the limitations that I have, you know, as a, you know, I kind of understand all that, you know, how that works, but, you know, I mean, it's the quantum universe is what they're living in. You know, it, my theory is that the, the ghosts, the aliens and uh, the alien world, the spirit world and the quantum world are all the same thing. They're all operating at that, at, at that uh, objective level of reality or what uh, physicist David Bohm would call the implicate reality, hmm. you know, which is different than our explicate reality, what we live day to day. So uh, yes, so there is oftentimes translation problems with that. And, but uh, everything he said has generally happened. And, uh, you know, I've shared these things with Terry and, and uh, I'm always careful when I tell other people like today, I did a spirit walk and I did it on Facebook live. Oh, now, okay. I did one before just to, you know, so your listeners know I, I do one before because I don't want to get some really startling information and then do it live on Facebook. And I'm all, you know, freaked out about it or I usually don't get freaked out, but I, I want to make sure that other people don't freak out. So I'll do one a little before so I know what to say during the Facebook live. So uh, I can kind of like tone it down or just kind of frame it in such a way it's okay, this is just, I think, what's going to happen, but we need to be prepared. Let's not freak out about it. Pre preparations are never bad. Uh, but what I can share with you today, for instance, is uh, it tends to be a little more exact than I usually get. And I'll just share with you what, what happened last night. Um, I get visions all the time. Things come to me. Last night in my head, 
when I was sleeping, I kept thinking June 30th, June 30th, like big red letters and, and numbers, June 30th. And I woke up and I was still seeing it June 30th, kind of like a, you know, like a, a digital clock or, you know, you know, on the wall or something like we don't have that, but that's kind of, it was very bright. Mm-hmm. So today during my spirit walk, I asked Anzar, what, you know, what is this about June 30th? And, and what June 30th, is it like the coming up, you know, in 18 days or June 30th in the past or in, you know, the future or whatever? And he said it was the 18 days. And he said, well, in about two to three weeks. And I said, well, what's going to happen? And uh, he told me that there is going to be a, um, how do I want to put this? Um, a major disruption in our everyday lives. And it won't just be for us. It'll be worldwide. So uh, it's not that people should freak out, but, you know, these things are to be expected. I mean, you know, uh, we can't always be lucky, you know, (laughs) and uh, he's warned me about it. So, so what I've, what I would share with your listeners is just that we need to be ready in about two or three weeks. uh, He did say there are variables. It could be less than he thinks it's going to be. It could be more, but I very much think that when something terrible happens, there's a ret- retro causality. It goes back in time, you know, from the in the quantum world. It goes back in time to our our subjective reality, and we see it. We feel the the reverberations of this future event, like with 9/11, when I had a uh, a precognitive dream about 9/11 before on the morning of 9/11, and it wasn't just me; it was millions of other people around around the country, around the world, that had precognitive dreams. When something is so cataclysmic, it goes back in time and and gives you kind of like a, a signal and, and uh, a warning, you know, to be ready. And I, I think that's what what he's telling me. And whether it's June 30th or two or three weeks from now or approximately around that time, uh, there is something that is going to um, he said it, he, he used the, the words a major disruption. Now, when I think logically as a historian, as a, you know, I trained in political science too, <clears throat> I think, well, what possibly could it be? You know, is it like these hackers, are they going to go after infrastructure? Well, that seems pretty likely and actually pretty easy based on what I've seen so far. So, you know, Anzar won't pin it down, but you know, those are likely scenarios. Also it's, isn't it very suspicious that you hear nothing you hear all about UFOs here, about this disclosure thing or whatever on the 25th, which I have a whole opinion about that, but you don't hear anything coming from our adversaries about it. Aren't they worried about it? I found one little article, one tiny little article from a a Chinese, communist Chinese news source saying that they take it very seriously, but that was it. Very little information. Are they, are they serious? Are they making it up? You know, who knows? And, but you're hearing nothing from the Russians. You're hearing nothing from Iran. You're hearing nothing from really nothing from the Chinese. So, what is going on? Yeah, you know, it's, what it's is going really on? Bizarre. Yeah. Yeah. Now um, I know we're in an open society, so everything is kind of out in the open to our detriment sometimes in terms yes. of foreign policy. Yeah. But um, you know, having worked in you know with security clearances and stuff, but still, uh, it seems rather odd. So, anyway, I just wanted to to share with you that. Uh, that's the type of thing that um, 
that's one of the things that I Ansar does for me. But I want to share something more, more positive. <laughs> I mean, that's and just kind of like. Before you go let, positive, can I ask you a question? Yeah, yeah, sure. Go a little on a little bit of the dark road. road. Yeah. At least how I see it, as mm-hmm. I sit and I have these thought experiments, and I talk mm-hmm. with uh, some very bright colleagues of mine at my school. Mm-hmm. Um, children and technology and the cell phones and almost this uh, cybernetic kind of a everybody's connected on the phone, getting mm-hmm. there, basically getting programmed and getting their marching orders from, you know, little snippets of a headline where they're drawing their whole worldview now on, you know, very little information. They see a headline that says strawberries now cause cancer or -hmm. something like those lines. And they not only do they buy into it instantly, they will propagate that throughout social media. And Mm -hmm. I see with like my students, they no longer really, and I'm generalizing, but Mm -hmm. this is how I see it, especially this year with COVID doing the virtual teaching. They're more interested instead of learning something and getting the grassroots in, in the, the basic fundamentals of, of learning something, whether it's the scientific method or whatever the case may be, it's more about Googling and whatever comes up on that screen is true. Mm -hmm. Now, in any of your visions, I call them the, the walking dead syndrome. I watch people walk around, their heads are down. Mm-hmm. They're not looking. They're not communicating with people standing around them. And, and they just kind of go about their business and whatever that phone says or whatever the screen tells them, they do it mm-hmm. almost without question or believe it. In any of your premonitions, contacts, anything like that. Have you ever been told, Hey, you guys got to put the, the brakes on this technology. You got almost 3 billion people out there that are forming their worldview based on social media, Mm -hmm. you know, anything along. So before you go into the happy place, I'm going (laughs) down a dark road a little bit. I see it as very negative in that regards. It, it, it can be very much so. And I, it reminds me of when I was a little kid, you know, I was always told, oh, the robots are becoming so human-like, you know, they're making them. And I, I always thought, I'm not worried about that. I'm worried about humans becoming like robots. And then, of course, you know, you see, the, you know, there were science fiction shows that where that was true, you know, whether it was Star Trek or whatever I was watching at the time. Sure. And so I had that ingrained in my head. And I very much uh, agree with you what you're saying. It is worrisome. Uh, I see the way students react to what's going on. There is a, a, like a global surface flypaper knowledge with no depth. And I'm not saying they're dumb because they're not, they're extremely smart, my young students, but they're being sold shortcuts to everything, you know, kind of like cheat codes and games, you know, or whatever. Yes. Yeah. And um, those shortcuts are, are allowing them to be manipulated. So I spend a lot of time yes. talking about what propaganda is. It's and, almost uh, like cult, like being in a cult. Yes. It, it is. If, and it, it is, it's very worrisome. And, 
And it doesn't even have anything to do really with uh, politics because politics no. is just what somebody uses to get the power that they want. And it doesn't matter whether they're extreme left, extreme right, extreme right. people who don't care about individual rights or what you know people thinking for themselves they want to push people in one direction or another. And, and we know that the easiest way to control people is through fear and anger. And if you can get people afraid or angry or both, they're like putty in your hands or like a cell phone in your hands. And it's making Absolutely. you afraid. It's making you uh, hateful, you know? So I'll, I'll say this, that I, I, I do agree with that. And it is, it is something I'm very worried about. And when, you know, Ansar warned me about a pocket revolution, I just thought of this now when you said that the pocket, what's in the pocket, the phone, the phone, all the kids have their phone in their back pocket. It's a pocket revolution. I didn't even think of that until just now I put together. see, this is what's so wonderful about these conversations is I only have a little piece of the puzzle. You have more pieces of the puzzle. I'm putting it together. So it's starting to make sense to me when he said pocket revolution. There it, you go. It, it doesn't have to be literal, you know, or it could be literal. It could you know? be, yeah. Yeah. So maybe it really is a, a, a pocket. Like Anzar has always told me, uh, you know, to, to be the light. He said, be the light. I just recently found out re reading some papers that um, DNA, our DNA emits light, emits photons. And they think that's related to how the paranormal works, how telepathy works, how telekinesis works. So when he tells me to be the light, we do emit light. We are light creatures. And you hear people saying, oh, I'm doing light work. You know, you hear people, new age people, they'll say, hey, I'm doing the right. light worker stuff. We are light. We are uh, waveforms, you know, to put it into the quantum realm. Well, so then that, it, that brings up a weird. It all makes sense to me now. Yeah. It all makes sense. But the pocket revolution with the, the phone, that's, that, that's freaky, man. That, that yeah. really got me right there. Wow. And, and, you know, you bring up light work. And I always, when I was a kid, I remember seeing, I don't know if it was a Donahue show. I don't know. It was ages ago, but there were, there was a time there in the late seventies, early eighties, where people were going around saying they could read auras of people mm -hmm. reading auras. Now that you bring up the whole, you know, DNA is, admitting light or at least photons mm -hmm. now it makes me wonder like with you you became very sensitive when you had that sickness mm -hmm. and it's almost like you stepped across in through this and, and i'm picturing this in my head it's like a doorway and half of your body's through it and the mm -hmm. other half isn't and it's like an elevator door it wants mm -hmm. to close, but because you're straddling both sides of this round, these realms, it stays open for you, mm -hmm. which I think makes it very easy for you to pick up on, on these signals that you are getting or whatever it, it may be. I, I have no idea. I just, it's Some, yeah. just amazing. It's just, amazing. I, I think, no, I think you're right. Some people call it a signal line. Uh, it's kind of like if you compare it to old radio waves, you know, like when you had an old radio and you're trying to get it tuned in, you know, and it gets a little fuzzy, you get some static. That's kind of how when I do mediumship, that's kind of how it is. You got to get dialed in. And sometimes it's very clear, like you and I are talking right now. Other right. times it's like, oh, 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 you can barely understand what they're saying. And then 
it's whatever language they're speaking that somehow I understand symbolically. Sometimes they show me images, you know, rather than words. And sometimes I see handwriting. I mean, it's, it's pretty wild, but um, yeah, the, the whole idea of being the light, you know, um, that's one thing he always says. And the other thing, because we can come back to the darker thing, because I think we will end up back there again. Yeah. Let's go to your positive thing. <laughs> yeah. He, he, every time I talk to him, and every single time he reminds me, keep love in your heart and always operate from a position of love. Now, that, that sounds very huggy, feely, touchy, feely kind of stuff. But when you think about it, it is brutally hard to do. It is really hard, especially in the world that we live in, where people are so polarized and yakking at each other and ne- neither one listening and so angry and so manipulative and, you know, and they're doing it in front of children and children listen and they get all confused. And, and he said, keep love in your heart and always operate from a position of love. And that includes, you know, our so-called enemies, you know, the Chinese, the Russian, what do they want? What does the average person in China want? I think they want the same thing you and I want. Of course they do. But who are these government people? Who are these people in power who are manipulating them? The same people in Russia, you know, Putin, he's probably, I don't think he's a good guy. He's not a boy scout for sure. No, nope. uh, former KGB guy, but uh, and very smart and intuitive. But uh, the average people in Ru- I know Russian people; they're very wonderful. I've taught Russians up in Norway when I was a Fulbright teacher, and I was a little reluctant because I'd been in the army, and those were our enemy, you know. And they were wonderful students. And I work with actors in theater, and I have a Russian actor. She's a wonderful person, a wonderful human being. So. Uh, yeah, Keeping that separation is yeah, important to keep love in your heart and operate from a position of love. That doesn't mean you just give in to the bad guys. If somebody's, you don't let people hurt you or your family or your friends, you got to protect yourself and protect the innocent. But still, you keep love in your heart. You don't go overboard. You don't go too far with it. Yeah. So I, I use that every day in my everyday life. It just, it helps with, with everything. It really does. And some of the other things, um, related to this disclosure thing. I, I mentioned I don't like the word disclosure. Right. It's used a lot. Now, when you think about it, disclosure, what does it mean? Somebody is disclosing something to you. They're giving you information. They're giving you the truth, right? Which is what everybody says. Oh, we want disclosure. We want the government to provide disclosure. Well, for one thing, don't we need to be part of that process? We need to, people need to rise up and say, I've also had an alien experience and I'm not afraid of my boss or my coworkers. The world is paranormal. The, the paranormal is really normal. The supernatural is really natural. Let's all disclose that information. So it's very personal. And uh, Anzar tells me that it's really the better word than disclosure is revelation. And he said, all that implies so there's a religious aspect of it to it, but there's the other definitions like you reveal the truth is revealed to you by you internally and you accept it. So when he talks about a leap of consciousness through revelation, that's what he's talking about. We can sit here and wait forever. And we have waited for 70 years for the government to tell us the truth. I don't think they're going to tell us the truth on the 25th, at least not the whole truth on the 25th, even though they say they're going to come out with a report. I'm pretty sure that what it'll be is, okay, UFOs are real. We're not making it up. It's not a hot air balloon, you know, hypersonic hot air balloon or whatever. 
Yeah, Obviously, it's not, it's not our equipment. It's not Chinese yeah. equipment. It's not Russian equipment. We don't know. We, but we're not story. saying it's aliens. Right. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. no, they, there's already a, an article in Scientific American um, mm-hmm. magazine that's already stating that even within the annex of all of the reports over the last 20 years, that there's going to be um, a, a portion that's left out um, because mm-hmm it should not be visible to the general public. Yeah. So, I mean, that portion's already out there that the, we'll never see a full report. It'll yeah, be and, 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 and Anzar said that, that that's okay. That's to be expected by government types. You know, that are, they're not, it's up to us to take that leap of consciousness. And if we take that leap of consciousness, it doesn't matter what they say. We know what the truth is. All of us who've had experiences whether it's Terry Lovelace, yourself, or anybody else, millions of people around the world, we know what the truth is already. So we don't need to wait for them to tell us what we already know. We would like confirmation. I mean, it's nice to talk to people who say, I've seen a UFO too. I've had an alien encounter too. It's nice to talk to them, but it doesn't, it's, it, it makes you feel like, okay, there's that little skeptical part of me, but okay, I can come back in a little bit more and I not maybe not be skeptical of my own experience, but it, it's really a revelation. And, and this is what I wanted to lead to. This is kind of a very important thing that Anzar told me. I want to read it. Uh, this is from the book. Um, he told me that extraterrestrial technology, ET technology and wisdom are precious gifts for all, not a strategic advantage for the few. So the governments are messing this up. Of course, you can't rely on them to tell the truth about this stuff because they're thinking I've talked to some people in the intelligence community and they've told me offline, no names. uh, They're trying to figure out they're busy trying to figure out how to strap a bomb to this technology. Yeah, they want to put a bomb on that Tic Tac thing. They want to. And Anzar is telling me, no, that it ain't going to happen. Right. We're not going to let that even the ETs who are not necessarily friendly are not going to be allowed to do that, um, <clears throat> to, to give us that be, because they know it'll happen. It'll destroy everything they want. You know, they, they, they're very interested in our planet, obviously. And if they wanted to enslave us and do all this, it, you know, there are, there are so-called good ETs and there are so-called not so good. And there's kind of a clash between the two of them. Um, Ansar is on the good side. I know he is. Otherwise he wouldn't tell me to keep love in my heart and always operate from a position of love. He'd tell me to go, you know, hurt people or do you know, terrible things. And that's not what he's telling me. So I know he's not demonic. I know he's not a bad ET. Right. And he's actually a, a you know, a ancient mystic, you know, he calls himself the progenitor, which means he was the first contact. So he's ancient. He, but he is, um, and I realized by saying that, you know, those in the intelligence community, those foreign or domestic, uh, if they actually believed what I was saying, which I don't think they do, I think they, they might think I'm a crazy nut or something, and that's fine. But once they do think that I really am communicating with this ancient alien mystic, I'm probably going to get some knocks on the door several knocks on the door, and maybe more than that. So I think it's the best thing to do, like with Terry, and you know you guys have talked to Terry, they're very interested in him. Yeah. Because they know he holds the truth. 
They know he's telling the truth. He's got physical or he had physical evidence yes. implanted in his body. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. and when and when people start figuring out that Anzar has been telling me that in advance what's going to happen and giving me this this very sage advice, and that's just a couple of things that he's told me. Um, you know, there's going to be a lot more interest. And I, but I told Terry, Anzar has told me part of my job is to help Terry. That's part of my job. And uh, because he, he's taken a lot of heat. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, like I said, there have been government types and other who knows who they are have been monitoring him. So, and it's not paranoia, you know, right, uh, right. because he's shown me, I'm a helicopter pilot. So he's shown me some of the helicopters that were buzzing his house all the time. And I identified some of them and others I couldn't identify, but um, <clears throat> you have, you have to, you know, realize that, that that is something that is uh, they want to control. Those in power would like to control that knowledge, that wisdom, that technology from us because they're afraid it'll get to our enemies. Yep. But what they don't realize is that it's for everybody yep. and it can't be used to harm people. Well, imagine if you if you could strap a low yield nuclear bomb, push a button, and that bomb disappears from this reality, mm-hmm. goes through a different reality, appears back in our reality, right on the doorstep of the White House, and goes yeah, off exactly in an instant. No, no defense, no nothing. Yeah. So I, I'm sure their response, like I heard uh, Lou Elizondo in many uh, interviews say it's all about national defense, you know, yeah. national security. Right. And I, I can see that you don't want this stuff to fall into China's hands, but again, it, it's like the mutual assured destruction type of mentality. Mm-hmm. If everybody has it, then everybody would be afraid to, to use it against each other because, you know, mm-hmm. but Maybe right now where we're at, considering how polarized the whole world is, not just our country, Mm -hmm. maybe something like that is not a good idea right now. It it could be beneficial, you know, no more burning fossil fuels for electricity, you know, uh, what gravity manipulation, things Mm -hmm. like, you know, being able to to move yourself around at a whim, you know, with no cost to the environment or yourself or anything like that. And our own, I guess I I like the one term I heard Tristan. um, I think what's his name? Tristan Harris. He, he did the, the uh, social dilemma documentary about Mm -hmm. people being under the influence of this phone, you know, your pocket revolution, Mm -hmm. um, which is amazing to me that that all just came together. I know. But, I, know I, I, it's because of you, Wayne. You, you're the one who made me connect with those things. There. That's crazy. But what he calls what happens to what's happened to our society and almost three billion people on this planet is that these large tech companies are interested in one thing, and it's he calls it the race to the bottom of the brainstem. Yeah, it's all That's, about the pleasure principle, right? Yeah. Getting those likes, getting that dopamine hit that serotonin feeling Mm -hmm. when you get the likes and the the beautification filters on the phones and the snapchats and all that stuff to make yourself look different and it it, it's just mind-boggling that that's where we're going where now where we're at in 
and understanding now this, the UFO paranormal world. And we're seeing this kind of a unified theory of everything when it comes, like you're talking about right now. I just think about that, that these could all be related. Mm -hmm. And so we're, we have this dichotomy. We have a, a world that could be very, very awesome and very accepting versus one that is completely materialistic and mm. more interested in fighting with each other for mm-hmm. the scraps instead of everybody having plenty. Yeah. You know, um, it's, yeah, I mean, it's I, I think you're, you're, you're absolutely correct. You know, the, the, Anzar saying that it's a precious gift for all, not a strategic advantage for the few. I mean, that's how we're living our lives, unfortunately. We, we have enough food to feed the planet, yet people are starving. We have enough clean water for everybody to have a clean water source, but, but we can't get it to them. We don't want it. There's the, we lack the will, not the technology. We don't lack the technology. We lack the will to do it because of corrupt governments here, there, wherever. And, and, you know, we, we can uh, have an existence that would be absolutely wonderful. And I think I'm very optimistic and Anzar helps me. We will get there. We will get there. But the problem is that it's going to, people are going to, as they, t- you know, we move forward in our evolution, they're going to be people that fall off in either direction, either extreme. And, and they're going to be fighting and it's going to be conflict driven because they're going to be completely mind blown. And they, they're, they're going to be desperate. And, and, and whenever the people are desperate, there's those, you know, horrible people that rise up and offer them very simple solutions, whether it's a Hitler, a Mao Zedong, a Joseph Stalin, whatever, those types, uh, you know, or, or, you know, Charles Manson types, you know, that, uh, that can direct other people, that can manipulate them. And, and so that's what the other part Anzar talks about is what he calls an era of reconversion. He calls it an era of reconversion that we're entering. The sleep of consciousness leads into an era of reconversion. Now, I've thought about this and asked him about it. What it comes down to is as, as ancient people, we knew how to live within our means in the environment. We knew our connection to the stars and to the animals and the earth and everything as one. You know, we we're all one. We understood that. We saw spirits. Spirits were part of our everyday life. And now we shut them out. The, the world we live in doesn't even acknowledge it. You know, our ancestors are right there. I mean, they're around us. They're around you. They're around me right now. They're right here with us, you know, all the time. Somebody said, a religious person once told me the heaven is only, is only three feet away. You know, this idea that the other world, the spirit world is right there with us. And um, I'm optimistic about our future, but I'm also realistic about the the trials and tribulations that we're going to suffer, the cataclysms, the calamities, the uh, uh, things that we're going to have to go through to get there. I mean, it, it's going to be very painful. And I don't know exactly how painful, but I, you know, I think most people sense that, that we're on this, there's a paradigm shift going on. And um, I think a lot of people are ready to be on board with that. And there are a lot of people who are not ready and they're going to, it's going to be very hard for them. Extremely hard. Yeah. You um, know, I, I would honestly be happy that if I turn on the news, which I don't generally, but if I watch something that has to do with UFOs, 
I would be really happy if I don't hear some kind of weird X-Files music leading into this segment in the background with the weird look from the anchor's face that's going to talk about it or make comments about it or, or sorry, Tucker Carlson, I know you're not listening, but you know, (laughs) the, the, he's going to talk about UFOs. You get the weird little music and you see in downtown New York, they put the little graphic of the UFO saucer, right? (laughs) Yeah. Right. Got to fly away. (laughs) We we don't need that. We, you know, this, that kind of stuff, I, I would be so happy if we could just start there. There's a difference between science fiction and what has happened to so many people on this planet. You cannot deny it anymore, at least in my opinion. Mm-hmm. There are so many of these stories and there's so much going on. And we really, like you said, that's a very amazing point you made. Our ancient ancestors were so connected to the energy of the earth, ley lines, whatever. I mean, look at the pyramids. I mean, that, that's going to be a whole discussion with my next week's guest. <laughs> but uh, it, we've been on this planet for almost 200,000 years as human beings. Mm-hmm. Okay. Look at what we did in the last 150. Is that all we've ever done? Is that the best? <laughs> I don't think so. I think there's been these cataclysms that have happened and we've Mm -hmm. had to start over many times. Now, maybe we got help from the angels or your guardian, Mm -hmm. right. Or these, right. These other beings that were seen as something, but I mean, we were connected and it seems like more what we're connected to is all of the physical. Yeah. And in reality, I think, the more we're connected to these physical objects and things, the more distant we become from each other, which makes it very easy to hate, which makes it very easy to be misled. The race to the bottom of the brainstem, Mm -hmm. fear, anger, control. Yeah. And so I was explaining to Michelle today, I I was thinking about the Hegelian dialectic. I have no Mm -hmm. idea where this came from. But you figure that these people will create a problem when they already have the solution in hand that, they're, that they want you to do. So in order to get you to do this, they create the problem. Oh, you really need this product right here. Mm-hmm. I do. Why? Because you have this problem. You just don't know it yet. And here we are. We just happened to show up and we got all the answers for you. I see this in education quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and uh, it, it's just, it's just mind boggling where, where everything's at. And we really are, I think on this precipice of some people are going to be awakened mm-hmm. greatly. Can't deny things anymore. And others are just going to continue to spiral down and it's going to yeah. cause this rift. It's a, and, it's a scary time for a lot of people. Yeah. And I, I, um, I do, you know, like to, uh, I like to, you know, remind people, you know, at least in my view, that I think ultimately we're going to be okay. Yep. That doesn't mean everybody's going to be okay, but ultimately right. we, you know, will pull out of it. And the other thing that Ansar reminded me of is that, um, I, you know, ETs are not going to allow us to use nuclear weapons against each other. 
they're not going to, they've already stopped it already. I and mean, we have evidence of that, you know, over hovering over nuclear sites and shutting them down. And miraculously, all the centrifuges went down in Iran. And uh, maybe that was the Israelis or maybe who knows what. And he told me that, you know, that that's, they can do that because they have a vested interest in preserving this planet. They don't want us to ruin it. Probably like other planets they've been involved with have been ruined. But they cannot intervene in everything. They can't intervene in conventional warfare. Otherwise, you know, it's the big argument about, you know, with God, you know, it's like this concept of God, the creator, whatever. How can he allow the suffering? How can he allow six million Jews to be killed and executed? How can he allow 10 million Russians during the Persians to be killed? How can he, you know, allow all these atrocities and children being shot in the streets of Chicago? How can he allow all that stuff? Because ultimately, we have to take responsibility. And that's what he tells us. We can't do everything for you. If we do everything for you, Nobody you guys won't be able do to do anything. That's you won't right. have any responsibility. And, and talking about young people, it's one of the biggest things we do as teachers, teaching responsibility, just basic responsibility. I didn't get my homework done because uh, somebody was mean to me or whatever. You're still responsible for the work. I'm sorry that somebody was mean to you but you still have to turn in the work. That's your responsibility. And, and just basic things like that. And, and if, if we just rely on, um, you know, the concept of God to God, do everything for us, you know, or for the ETs as intermediaries to help, you know, to help us with everything. It ain't going to happen. It ain't going to happen. That's not what, it, you know, they're, they're providing us as Anzar says, he, he gives me guidance. He gives me information he gives us nudges. He calls them nudges, which I think is a funny word for him to use. But anyway, that's how it comes out when I translate it. It's nudges to move us in the right direction, kind of like nudge. Okay, go that way. Uh, but you got to do it yourself. And um, the, uh, uh, the thing I wanted to share was, uh, oh, this idea. Uh, one of the things Gene said to me, and then Anzar said it too, uh, Gene told me, uh, we are the aliens. And I, I said, what do you mean by that, Gene? You know, you like, you're a ghost, so you guys are the aliens? No, he said, we are all the aliens. We are all connected. And Anzar said, we are all related. Th these are not, this contact is really a reunion, he told me. And he, he put in my mind, you know, the history I'm teaching, you know, about the old world and the new world. When they came together, it was really a, a reunion because we all came from the same place in East Africa where human beings originated. And then we spread out into the, you know, all the continents and so forth and into the Americas. So the old world and the new world, they're actually both old and they're both related and we're all related. And we're related to those, what the Native Americans would call the star people. We are, we are all related. And that's the point he, he wanted to, to, to make, that we are all the aliens. Now, some would say, I have a friend of mine who teaches at Montana Tech, uh, Michael, um, oh, he wrote a book called Identified Flying Objects. Um, Michael, anyway, uh, he, his thing is that they're time traveling humans. You know, that's who they are. And I, I told him, I think that's part of it, but I think there's, there's other, you know, 
non-human races too, but we are still related, you know, different levels of evolution or whatever. And um, including the insectoids, which is hard to believe, but you know, uh, I love that story. Was it Whitley Strieber who said that um, somebody complained to the aliens, you know, that, you know, it, it's not so bad. It wouldn't be so bad if you guys weren't so ugly. And then uh, <laughs> the, the alien said, you don't understand. You're going to look just like us oh, eventually. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. thought that was really cool. It was Whitley Strieber said that. Um, but anyway, yeah, it's, it is all connected and, we all have a piece of the puzzle and I just thought it was wonderful how you helped me connect the dots with this, what Anzar told me. And it just shows how we need each other to help understand this stuff. We can't just be in isolation thing. Oh, I'm going to figure it all out myself, you know? So we got to go, we got to listen to podcasts, talk to cool people, go to these uh, conferences and uh, you know, and you can, you can see the wheat through the shaft, you know, there's people who are kind of charlatans, you know, doing their own thing. But then there's the serious people who actually have something to offer and and want to help. And well, you know, I'm, that's, just, I'm just a little high school science teacher, you know, but I, I think about these things. You know, Michelle is, is a, a middle school ELA teacher with a background mm-hmm. in theater and, and mm-hmm. speech. And we had our experience. And now, yeah. you know, I've I've who was it? Jeremy Corbell, I think says weaponize mm-hmm. your curiosity. Yeah. I don't have to weaponize it. It's fully on now. I mean, <laughs> I want to know what is going on. And I just, I can't believe over the last two years, kind of how things have, have progressed and gone. And now the people that I get to talk to about this and mm-hmm. it's uh, it is readily apparent to me that something is going on people are having experiences they are they are personal to them so it, it it's different they manifest i guess i want to say they they manifest differently for people but there mm-hmm. does seem to be like this triggering event like you when you were sick mm-hmm. um terry i think said and if i'm trying to remember back in his book he had the monkey people when he was yeah. a little child as a kid yeah yeah the circus um, monkeys, yeah. Circus monkey that that kind of mm-hmm. creeped them out. Yeah. But his, you know, his experience was not very positive. <laughs> to no, say it the wasn't. Least. He looks at it a little differently now. He's kind of evolved in his thinking, but still, it was traumatic. Yeah. You know, just like my experience, early experience was traumatic enough to where I couldn't speak for two years. But when I think what the trade-off was, you know. Yep. that I was actually protected. So I, I think Terry's kind of evolved a little bit, but yes, physically he suffered a lot and, and psychologically suffered and, and yeah. not just from the alien experience, but from how the government treated him. After. Yes. Right. Maybe that even world. more so, yeah. you know, making him think he was crazy or whatever, you know, they were doing. Yeah. Which is, which is outrageous. I mean, that's just outrageous. You got, he is uh, such a special person uh, you know, I mean, so credible. And yet he has people attack him who don't yeah. even know him, don't even know the story. They're just exactly. professional debunkers. Right. And I, I don't mind skeptics. That's a natural thing. I, right. I'm skeptical right. about certain things. Right. But a debunker has left logic behind and has an agenda. Yep. To bring you down. They're going to bring you down no matter. It doesn't even matter what they believe. They don't really care. They're going right. to have celebrity from debunking. 
Yeah. Well, it's once once the intent becomes malicious, then yes. all gloves are off. Yep. And and it's not fair because think about it. You okay, Terry yourself had a very uh, traumatic experience all the way. You know, you know, very specific to you and and Terry. But now, who are the easy targets for these quote unquote debunkers to go after? People that are traumatized. So they Mm -hmm. continue that attack and and hopefully what to shut you up, to discredit you. And and to what point, what point does you telling us what Anzar is telling you? Oh, geez, listen to this horrible thing that, that he's saying that he's being told, keep loving your heart. Oh my God, that's horrible. I must (laughs) have that. What yeah. difference does it make at that point? Right. I mean, it, it, it's ridiculous. It, it really is. And so anybody else out there that has an experience. Yeah. Even though they would get the same message at church on a Sunday. Well, but anybody else that has an experience out there, they're going to, they're going to run, they're going to hide. They're going to have traumatic issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe even suffer psychological breaks. Um, because they've had some kind of experience that who are they going to tell and, and yeah. why would they want to tell anybody when they think they're going to be discredited, attacked, you know, uh, like I was talking, uh, to one of my friends, I was talking to Michelle, um, a recent Neil deGrasse Tyson, sorry, Neil, I love you, but I don't love you anymore with the whole, 15 minute diatribe on why UFOs aren't real that the government is showing us videos because, well, are the radars calibrated correctly? And let's look at what happened when they tried to figure out what object was affecting Neptune's orbit and then Uranus's orbit. And, Mm -hmm. oh, there's no planet X. That's just Pluto. He goes through this 15 minute arrogant Mm -hmm. diatribe of Mm -hmm. why UFOs aren't real when the Navy is releasing all this footage and David Fravor has been on Joe Rogan and all kinds of mm-hmm. other shows discussing what happened. Now he's not saying ET. He's not saying he had contact. He's explaining what the situation was. Yeah. And these, are, these are serious people, highly trained. Serious, yeah. People. Yeah. Yeah. You don't let anybody fly a $20 million state of the art aircraft off of an aircraft carrier with a wingman, in this case, a wing woman that mm-hmm. saw it and was his cover, was flying cover while yeah. he was circling down to investigate this thing. Yeah. Now, now you're going to tell me that four people, highly trained observers, military people, see this object hovering a, around this white water in the middle of the ocean, watch this tic-tac object react to them and start coming up toward them. They get it on their infrared and, you know, television type targeting system and radar system, which shows, by the way, they were being actively jammed by Mm -hmm. this. All of that, plus all of the high tech radars on the the destroyers and on the aircraft carriers Mm -hmm. on land base that that dispatched them and said, hey, Mm -hmm. We need real world tasking going on. Get to this location. There's something there on our radars. Mm-hmm. All of that is wrong. Yeah, all of it, it. All of it, it is wrong. They just saw a bird, 
or something, right? <laughs> yeah, or a, a weather balloon. Yeah, that's absolutely. Always silly. I guess he I, needs a firsthand account. It's yeah. ridiculous. Yeah, he he said something silly like, uh, "Well, when they come to me and we have lunch together, then I'll believe it." You know that kind. Why of thing. don't they just land on the White House lawn? Yeah, that yeah. that's always the good one too. Why yeah. would they? They'd probably be shot. <laughs> shot at they'd be attacked they're not stupid whatever whoever they are i mean no that's that's exactly right i I wanted to mention i i also uh write and publish comic books in my latest snark uh, Snark comic snark 2 there's a story about neil degrassi tyson in there and i've never had a problem with the guy i think you know anybody who popularizes science and gets kids excited that's great but once he starts doing that stuff so I couldn't resist but to poke fun at him in good. a good-natured way, you know, not in a hateful way. But yeah. um, And what I have in the story in Snark 2, just to give you a little glimpse of it, um, he is uh, – Snark is a, a half-alien, half-human hybrid, and he has this cosmic staff uh, you know, companion with him. And they show up. They teleport into Neil deGrasse uh, uh, Tyson's studio and disrupt his broadcast. And he says, you know, get these guys out of here. And then he says, well, I have a message for you. You know, Snark says, I have a message for you. And then all of a sudden, Carl Sagan shows up. (laughs) And then Carl Sagan tells Neil, he says, uh, uh, Neil, I was wrong. You know, because Carl Sagan also, you know, kind of would be a debunker in some ways. Although he did wonderful work for science and everything else. And I swear I read somewhere that they, uh, that it's kind of not common knowledge, but it's out there that he was actually being paid from government agencies. Don't, I mean, yeah. this is secondhand. Well, and I'll, knowledge, I'll do but... a little plug for those interested in the book. It can be found on Amazon. Oh, yeah. so <laughs> absolutely. Already, it's already a graphic found... novel. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Already found it. Now, do you only have snark snark one and snark two? Cause snark one is a comic book, correct? Yeah, Snark One is a comic book. It's available on comicsology.com, uh, or they can contact me at my website and I can get them a hard copy. Snark One, it'll be worth a lot of money someday, right? Because <laughs> it's an actual comic book. Snark Two is on Amazon and it's a graphic novel. Okay. And that's okay. the one that has the story about Neil deGrasse Tyson, where I poke, give him a little poke, yeah. you know. And uh, yeah, I just thought it would be fun to bring. Carl Sagan into the <laughs> equation and say, you know, hey, Neil, I was wrong. Next thing you know, Snark has them uh, in this uh, uh, interdimensional vortex floating into the universe, you know, and then Neil's going, oh, my gosh, I had no idea. That's great. <laughs> so he got his comeuppance there. Yeah. <laughs> now, from a ELA perspective, do the stories build from the comic book to the graphic novel or are they two completely different stories? No, they, they're all connected. In fact, okay. I, I tell the stories in a series of, they're all like three, four, five pages, and it continues from Snark 1 into Snark 2. Okay. And so it's building, you know, the, the tension is building because Snark was sent to Earth by his reptilian home planet of Maron to help prepare us for invasion or subjugation, you know. And then he decides his human half you know, decide, I really like these humans. I think I want to help them. We got to figure out a way for us to work together, you know? And so that upsets his, uh, you know, his hosts back home. So uh, that causes the, you know, the conflict and the tension. And of course, 
he meets very interesting human beings along the way from homeless people to people grieving the loss of their son to opioid addiction. You know, so I, I bring in social issues. I bring in history, a lot of comedy, science fiction and fantasy. Nothing pedantic. You know, I don't preach to anybody because it's through the eyes of an innocent, you know, and uh, this this snark character. So, uh yeah, so it's it's a lot of fun, and actually, uh, the third comic book in the series is actually going to be a spinoff with a female lead character named Dr. Jekyll, the alien hunter. She's an anthropologist from <laughs> Cleveland State University, and she's going to have her own comic book, and that'll come out next year, and then the year after, Snark 3 will come out. So I, I awesome. got this whole thing planned out a couple of years in advance, and it's it's so much fun because I can put in my personal experiences, but put it in a fictional environment which is only quasi-fictional, you know, right. uh, based on what I'm being told. So it's a lot of fun, and, and, and it's all ages, all ages comic book, too. So kids can, kids love it. You know, the kids I've talked to have read it. They love it. So, and yeah, adults saw, like it, too. Yeah, I saw that it was written for grade levels 7 through 9. So it, yeah. it'll, it'll be within my library soon. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it's, it's it fun. It's very, you know, nobody's going to complain about it or anything that's not, you know, overtly political or any political point of view. It just, because it's through the eyes of an innocent, you know, like for instance, when Snark goes to the border, the U.S.-Mexico border, he looks at the fence and he says, I wonder if this is built to keep people in or keep people out. He wasn't sure. what. <laughs> and then he meets this migrant family and he just, he makes that one-on-one -on -one connection, which I think a lot of political people, they forget about, you know, let's make the one-on-one -on -one connection and see, well, why are people what's going on with them, you know, and how are, what do they think? And uh, so it's, it's just kind of a cool, and then he meets uh, also meets a, a border uh, agent as well and uh, helps him find some smugglers or whatever, you know, and no. uh, so there, yeah, so it's, it's kind of fun, you know, and he, he goes to, uh, he goes to the white house, uh, I think in snark too, he goes to uh, um, uh, Mount Rushmore. Uh, he already in Snark One went to the Devil's Tower or Mato Tepila, as it's called by the Native uh, yeah. Americans. But anyway, so it's it, it's kind of a cool way to combine my real life experiences, my research, my contact with Anzar, and put it into this fictional character, which really goes back 37 years when I started a comic strip when I was going to engineering school at Montana Tech. Oh, wow. That's when Snark started, and then it just got put on hold for 37 years until I finally was able to find a good enough artist, you know, somebody better than me, obviously, to put this thing out there. And I, I couldn't live up to my own standards with the art, so I, I'm a frustrated comic book artist. So, <laughs> well, and but, I know I've got students who listen to our podcast too, so I'm oh, sure cool. I'll get I'll get an email. <laughs> <laughs> oh that yeah they'll love snark you know snark is it he's really cool and then i think they'll for young girls so i think it's very important to get young girls into comics too because so often you know they it's kind of put offish you know when they go to a comic book shop it shouldn't be it should be for everybody but maybe less so now but uh this set you know this offshoot comic dr jekyll uh alien hunter she's not a supermodel she's just a, a professor an academic but she has these extraordinary experiences and um, she actually shows up in snark too. So you'll see a little bit of her story there okay. and then she'll have her own comic book next year. And I, and I found this wonderful artist, this 19 year old, get this, a 19 year old girl from Poland 
I saw her art on Instagram and I got, oh my God, this is kind of like the Eureka moment we had with the pocket revolution. I said, this is the artist for, you know, a female lead character. I, and, and she just captured it perfectly, the kind of art I was imagining. So she's going to be illustrating that. When I get to Snark 3, Gary Dumb, my friend from Cleveland, will, you know, he'll continue with the Snark series. But she's going to uh, take on the uh, Dr. Jekyll. So I just, uh, it's funny how these things, you know, how these things happen. But uh, I, I love it. And I love theater, too. You know, I'm, we're doing a theatrical production of Snark. So, <laughs> oh my God, that's great. That is, great. it's going to be animated. Yeah. It's an animated, uh, it's going to be live animated series. If you can imagine that. So I can't even imagine it. The I was going to say, are, how does that work? Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> and Our how is that guys, casting call? Can I get a plane ticket to California? honey? <laughs> <laughs> we are, we're having a lot of fun with it. And we're just doing, you know, the, it, it'll be in like a serialized form. There'll be like, each story is, is, you know, maybe eight, nine minutes long and then sure. we'll release it, you know, like that. And the actors are having a blast. I mean, they're playing these fantastical characters and we found a really good snark, a awesome. really good narrator. I mean, now, wonderful actors. So. Just out of curiosity, how did you bridge your work over into script writing and plays? Yeah, that was uh, everything I write has a specific purpose. I feel compelled to do. It's not like I sit down and I say, okay, I think I'm going to write a novel or something. It just, I feel compelled to do something and it turns into whatever format it has to be. So like with plays, my first play was called The Bronze Star. And I wrote it because a dear friend of mine, a Vietnam vet committed suicide. Now that sounds pretty horrible. And how are you going to write an uplifting play about, you know, something uplifting about that? I found a way to do it, but that's what motivated me to do, to do it. And my first play, The Bronze Star, was a huge production. It had music, it had everything, but uh, it won two awards from the Kennedy Center American Theater Festival. Two, one for uh, uh, dramaturgy and uh, one for performance, because we performed in LA as well. And um, so I just, I. I had to learn how to write plays. I mean, I'd written scripts before, but never, nothing was produced, nothing, you know, so I really had to learn how to, how to do it. And I took a screen, a script writing class. I took a screenwriting class. I took a, a playwriting class uh, from a teacher named Jose Cruz Gonzalez at Cal State LA. He's a children's theater guy. And mm-hmm. I loved his approach and he was so wonderful. He's retired now, but I always like to give a shout out to Jose. And uh, he, uh, he was so wonderful and really taught me so much about playwriting. And then I, I love the whole process. We talked about process earlier on, you know, I, I love the uh, going to every rehearsal. And I'm, I'm not one of those writers that shows up and disrupts the director and the actors. I'll just sit there and watch and take notes and wait till them to, you know, hey, what do you think about this? And I'll, I'll give them my honest answer. And, I just appreciate the camaraderie and how they make it better. They take what I put on the page and they bring it to life and I'm not going to interfere unless there's something that I, you know, like maybe a little thing. Uh, There was a decision when I wrote a play about world war II. somebody wanted to put the Nazis in like black leotards or something. And I said, (laughs) "Uh, no, 
That's I'm sorry. I got to say no. Yeah, uh, it, it's, it's gonna not look a ballet. Foolish. No, no, we got to get actual uniforms for them. Yeah. And they said, all right, all right. But they can't have weapons because we don't believe in weapons. I said, well, yeah, I'm sorry. They're going to have to have weapons still. They can't have a slingshot or a squirt gun. It's just going to look right. silly. People are going to laugh. You know, they got to right. be scary. So anyway, that that's the every once in a while I'll put my foot down. Or as my wife says, every once in a while I draw the line. <laughs> she likes to use that draw. The right. Line. Right. Well, you have to because of the integrity of the work. Yes. Yeah. And, and some, some people, they mean well, but they don't quite understand. They'll, they're great with other stuff, but that particular thing, you know, it's not going to work. Well, and, and not, not everything that's written needs to be presented in a PG model either. So yeah. because anything around World War II yeah. and the Nazi regime, there's nothing PG about that. No, so it's unfortunately the brutal reality. And it was based on my family history, you know, my parents living under Nazi occupation. So it was very personal to me. And actually, we were we got a grant from the government, uh, the Kingdom of Norway, to bring the play and all of our student actors to Norway and perform in Norway. Awesome. We were able to do that in 2016. Uh, changed those students' lives. 15 of them, uh, 15 of those student actors, most of them have never been out of California much less overseas. You know, these are working class kids. And, yeah. and we had a, a, a Mexican kid playing a Nazi. It was, you know, it, you know, <laughs> he, <laughs> so he was, he was very dark skinned, you know, but he was playing a Nazi. He did a great job, you know, and everybody just believed it, you know, because he was really, it didn't matter. He had the role. He had the, he had what it took to portray that character because it, it transcends you know, what, whatever skin tone you have or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say during that time, I had family that had fled from Hungary. Mm-hmm. So yeah, very yeah. Similar I, think, connection. I think a lot of people don't really realize that Norway was under Nazi occupation during world war two. And it was, it was brutal. It yeah. was brutal. It, it, you know, in the States, I don't think we, we really talk about, you know, a, a lot of our focus goes on, Auschwitz and the concentration camps and, you know, the, what happened to the Jews, the 6 million Jews that were basically exterminated and all that, but it wasn't just that. I mean, it was, and also it's like, it's also like a footnote where people want to talk about what the Japanese did, especially to the Chinese, mm-hmm. you know, the, or the and, Koreans, yeah. Or or the yeah. Koreans, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, brutal. Just yeah, it, it was a brutal, brutal war. And uh, well, and, as and, the as the survivors um, of the Holocaust, you know, as we lose those survivors to yeah. to age, yeah. and as more things happen in history, we know that things tend to not get watered down, but kind of go to that back burner. So, you no. know, when, once people forget, then what's going and then happen? revised. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. and that's people, why yeah. in, in so many curriculums, at least with mine, and I know with our seventh and eighth grade curriculum that we actually have a portion of our curriculum where we do embed, um, you know, information about World War Two and the Holocaust mm-hmm. as we go into maybe Diary of Anne Frank. Or for myself mm-hmm. in seventh grade, teaching Number of the Stars by Lois Lowry, so that mm-hmm. that history is still being taught 
It's just yeah. hoping that future curriculums will continue to allow that. Yeah. I, you know, I, you know I, what's I really topical for us, you know, all of us are teachers, right? So in Norway, when the Nazis came in, they told all the teachers, they gave them a curriculum. Yep. This is now the curriculum. And a lot of the teachers refused, you know, they had the, they were supposed to have the Nazi flag. They refused to do that. They refused to sing the Nazi songs. They refused to teach the Nazi curriculum. You know what happened to those teachers? They were all put in prison camps, Yes, but they wouldn't do it. Well, and it's the same thing nowadays. And I'm not going to bring up exactly what it is that teachers are worried about, but there are new things on the horizon when it comes to certain theories Academic freedom. Yeah, you're exactly right. It's it's it has a different name, perhaps, but when people start telling us how we're supposed to teach exactly. our subject, I mean, within reason, you know, I mean, if you're told you're supposed to teach history, you shouldn't be teaching basket weaving or something. Right. right? Exactly. But, how but, to you know, how I want to teach engine. the history? You hired me to teach history. I'm going to teach it. I'll do a very good job. The students have no complaints about what I'm doing. But if you come down and tell me these are the parameters. You know, whether it's a Nazi telling you that or anybody else, this is how, and if you know it's not true, especially not just controversial, but let's say, you know, it's not true. You have, we have integrity. We have responsibility, not only to ourselves, our own integrity, but to the lives of these children. That's it right there. That's where you really hear, you know, you get a lot of lip service from some of these people in academia where it's the, the tagline is, well, it's for the children. It's for the children. Mm-hmm. Do you even know who your children are? That I was going to say, those are the same people you who know, make up the curriculum and run everything, but they've never s- spent five minutes in a classroom. In a classroom. <laughs> oh, you exactly. Know, yeah. Bureaucrats I'm, and administrators, one in the same, you know, and, and it's or what uh, we used to call in the army bean counters. Yeah. 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 That's exactly right. That's right. <laughs> You know, they think everything could be quantitized, quantitized, right. <laughs> you know, try to, you know, it's, there's such an art to teaching as you guys know, yeah. and, but there's a lot of people maybe listening who don't know that when you walk into a classroom, every classroom has a personality. Absolutely. Every group of students have a personality. You got to adapt to that and they have to, you have to have the same standards, but you have to adjust. And some of them are really small adjustments, sometimes big adjustments. Every day is different. The mood of the class when you walk in there. I mean, those are, that, that's an art form and you don't, you learn that through trial and error. You really do. Yep. I mean, I, I think all of you probably, and I remember my first day teaching, I Absolutely. was terrified. I thought I was, I walked in front of a class of 75 college students teaching them history. And I thought, what do I know? I was questioning, what do I know? They probably know more than me. What, what right do I have to be here? And then I, I figured it out, but I had to stand up. I had to be on my feet. I had to absorb and understand. And, and you know, we have a, such a huge responsibility. And, and we do have to stand up occasionally when people have some bad ideas. That's right. And whether it's in theater or teaching or in uh, the paranormal or whatever, you know, people of yeah. integrity have to stand up and, and, and stand up for what's right. So yeah. it all there's a through line there. <laughs> yeah. Yep. I, I agree wholeheartedly. Uh, did you have anything else you wanted to ask about uh, the books or no, um, the, um, oh, what was that? I was looking into one of your books about the bees. Oh, yeah. Ooh. 
Yeah, that that was that's the only novel I've written. I've written, you know, plays that are fictional or quasi-fictional, you know, partly fictional, but uh, the comic book was supposedly fictional, right? Uh, but I told you the secret about the comic book. Uh, right. But the uh, the book, Allie's Bees, uh, is for middle grade readers. Okay. And adults, uh, you know, I'd say anybody sixth grade and above. Uh, and it's also a play, too, that we offer to school children we have here in L.A. County. Uh, so it's also a play, but it's an, a short novel that's very easy read for most people. Adults love it, too. I, I assign it to my students as extra credit, my college students, and they love it. But it's the story of a young Iraqi boy, refugee, orphan, who comes to live in East L.A. with his the only surviving relative is his grandfather, elderly grandfather. And his elderly grandfather is a beekeeper. And he teaches him about life through the bees. So the story is about adjusting as, you know, the PTSD he suffers from having seen his parents blown up in a market in Baghdad or wherever they were, uh, Bakuba, I think they were from. And um, and then learning how to deal with that, learning how to l- deal with the adjustment to a new culture in school, the bullies, you know, uh, and learning this this American sport of baseball, which his grandfather insists that he plays, even though he doesn't know anything about it and he's not very good. Uh, but he learns and he uses the bees the whole time to for him to understand how to work together. And so there's there's a little bit of envi- ecology in there, you know, the importance of bees you learn throughout the book, the kids learn, and they learn about working together, uh, you know, different groups of people working together, and integrity, and uh, healing each other, like uh, one of the main characters, uh, his father is a an Iraq uh, war veteran who does not like Middle Eastern people, so it's very difficult for him to but eventually he becomes friends with the grandfather. And anyway, I don't want to give the whole story away, but it's, it's, uh, <laughs> sounds awesome. I was compelled to write the book because it started because I started seeing dying bees everywhere. I wonder what, yes. what's going on. Why, why do I see everywhere I go? There's a dead bee or a dying bee. And, and it happened to be on one day on this ball field. I was, I was a coach. Uh, I was, no, I was watching my son's game. I'm also a baseball coach where I was. And I saw this dying bee. And then I thought, I got to research what's going on. You know, so I did a lot of research, read a lot of books and articles on, on colony collapse disorder and all this other stuff going on with bees. But then I matched that up with a kid that I had coached who was from the Middle East, didn't know anything about baseball, got put on my team. He was the worst player on the team, but he was a wonderful young boy. And he was being teased by some of the players. And I talked them. I said, you're not going to tease this boy you don't know what his life was like, how he didn't tell me what his life was like. I just assumed that it was pretty hard, you know? And I said, we're going to help him learn how to play baseball. And some of the parents were mean too. They said, why are you letting that kid bat? He's just going to strike out, you know? And I think, no, 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 we got to teach him. And as a coach, I learned, you have to, you can't just spend time with the most talented players. You have to take the least talented player and help them develop. And so from that experience, I developed the idea of a, a young Iraqi orphan. So I kind of mixed the, the two things together into the story. And then I never met any of my, either one of my, or any of my grandfathers. So I imagined a grandfather that I would want. So that's how I came up with that character. <laughs> yeah. But awesome. yeah, so I think it's, um, that's that book. And I, you know, and, and we have it as a play too, we've offered it for free 
to any school, you know, that would like us to do a, uh, we can do an, we've done online performances for them. Oh. Our actors can do the whole play online and they can, we can adapt it to whatever learning management system the teachers are using. I was so going to ask oh, you. Oh, I was, yeah. <laughs> I'm sitting here going, um, I might have to talk to our science department. I think that they would love that. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I, you know, I've, when we did a live performance of it, I had a bee scientist there with us to talk to the kids about honeybees. And, uh, but you know, on online it's, uh, yeah, science teachers would like it. Uh, English teachers, history teacher, you know, whatever. Yeah, uh, that, you know. that was leading me to one of the questions I wanted to ask you about that. Have any of your um, plays been like recorded? Are they available for people to watch? Yeah. Yeah. If you, if you, um, Go to my website. There is there are connections there. There are links, and okay. also on on Facebook and YouTube. You can look up Allie's Bees on YouTube. Okay, and there should awesome. be a recording there somewhere. And what is your website so everybody uh, that you know can go yeah. and check that out? It's uh, bruceolavsolheim.com. So okay. first name Bruce, middle name Olav. That's O L A V. Last name Solheim, S-O-L-H-E-I-M.com, BruceOlofSolheim.com. So everything's on there, all my books, all my plays, some of my music, too. Okay. <laughs> uh, other things. So Yeah, we were talking a little bit before we started recording about the, the creative process of getting together with uh, guys and jamming and coming up with music, which it. was a very cool connection that we had there. Yeah. I, I love it. I compare it to my theater stuff, too, working together. And just seeing this wonderful thing, just, you know, everybody doing their part. And I connected actually to being in the Army, too. Uh, I, I brought a lot of veterans who were struggling with transition. I brought them into the theater world to work with actors. And, you know, actors are very emotional and expressive, natural, sure. friendly people. And a lot of my veterans were very, you know, closed in and didn't want to talk, didn't want to show emotions, except, you know, being pissed off or whatever. Yeah, I brought them together with the actors and they blossomed and they some of them acted in the plays that I've written and uh, it was kind of therapeutic for them. And and there's actually theater of war that does that with classic theater. Yeah, uh, I think what's his name? Um, the guy that was in Star Wars. He's a veteran, too. Uh, he kind of has big ears. I forgot his name now, but uh, he's pr pretty young man, dark hair. Uh, can't think of his name, but anyway, he's involved with that theater of war. Okay. Yeah. So there, there is a, I connect all those things with. Uh, well, it know, goes the, back to like what you were talking about with responsibility, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, when, I know when I got out of the military and some of my friends that I know that, that struggled and some of them didn't survive, mm -hmm. but in the military, you know, you're given a lot of responsibility. You're taught, yeah. you're, you're treated horribly, and then you're given responsibility. It's like a whole new rebirth kind yeah. of as a person. And you're like, wow, you're trusting me with this. And, mm -hmm. and, but you also, and I think this is where the struggle happens. And I think we see this with like retired people as well, mm -hmm. is that not only do you have responsibility in the military and you learn responsibility, whether you like it or not, you learn responsibility for yourself, for your, your fire team, whatever, mm -hmm. you know, whatever's going on your crew. Um, but you have a purpose mm -hmm. and yeah. having that purpose driven life backed up by responsibility, I think is, 
And that makes sense to me that you say, you know, you, you coupled these veterans with these actors, they had now a purpose. They, you know, they do. An, an emotional yeah. connection instead of a job connection or, you know, a very materialistic one. This is more of a spiritual type of a It, it is exactly. Yeah. They, they are sharing of themselves, of yeah. their mission. And the, the theater mission is very similar. You know, you work together as a team. Absolutely. At, at the pinnacle of your performance, you know, you rely on each other. You know, they, they use that term in theater. You know, I'm dying out there on stage. You don't want your partner to die. Right. So you're going to help them. If they forget their lines, you're going to nudge them. You know, okay, here you go. Right. And, you know, so you have to work together. If one person falls, you got to pick them up. And and that's Nobody just the way it works. And I even had the veterans do, like when we did the Bronze Star, I had them do a, a boot camp for the actors who had no military experience. We had like a mini boot camp. We were running sure. around, you know, carrying stuff, carrying each other, you know. Yeah. And they loved it. You know, the, the civilian kids who'd never had military. They loved it because they really understood a little bit, not totally, you know, but I mean, they weren't under the uniform code of military justice or anything, but you right, know, they right. uh, or under fire, obviously. But uh, they got a little glimpse of the military ethos, you know, right. soldiering in this case, you know. Um, okay. So it was it was a wonderful thing to see how they helped each other grow. And I remember I had a, a mother of one of the veteran actors come up to me and said, um, you know, this, this play has saved my son. Wow. Wow. That's doing the good work, man. That's, that's what it's about. Yeah. Awesome. Well, before I think we uh, end this interview, um, wow, it took just a crazy turn. Um, I, I know guess that's how these things go. As, yeah. I always end up tearing up. So at some point I yeah. just can't help it. I'm kind well, of an emotional know, guy <laughs> as, as army vets, military vets, and then going into the classroom and fighting a whole different type of warfare and yeah. having a whole different type of team that you're trying to work with, mm -hmm. you know, you become emotionally invested and, yeah. and, uh, you hate losing students. I've lost students and, but you love seeing them succeed as well. You see mm -hmm. some of these kids more than their own parents get to see them, yep. you know, every day. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you really find out as a teacher and, and people can say what they want and be mean and nasty to teachers and this, that, and the other, but there's a connection, this, this connection that teachers make with their students. Like I'm in a, a 98% African-American, you know, charter school teaching high school science in, in Detroit. Mm -hmm. And I have some of the kids call me dad. They come up and give me hugs. Oh my God. Yeah. You know? That is wonderful. We, we connect and I'm, as human beings, mm -hmm. we can connect with everybody from anywhere. I mean, it's just, you have to be out there and other teachers that will hear this. I know they know exactly what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. You know, in our purpose now is trying to educate 
And like I always say, I don't want to teach kids what to think. I want to teach them how to think. Yeah, that, that's that's the main thing. And well, and it also gets away from that indoctrination that the public mm-hmm. often well, says that's that the negative. You, yeah, right. that's, that's the, the negative, negative side of because, you know, again, people will grab a hold of what is propping up their worldview and, you know, help uh, confirmation bias, I guess you could say, see. Yep. This is what the teachers are. They're all communists trying to bring mm-hmm. our kids up like this. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, whatever the case may be. I mean, I'm just throwing mm-hmm. out crazy examples. But before we get done, there's one thing on your bio that I wanted to ask you about. And it's one of the last things you mentioned here in your bio. It says that you are going to be a part of Demi Lovato's new unidentified show on NBC Peacock. Please, please talk about that. That is a that is a weird turn of events. Yeah, no, I I can't even believe it. I it was just one of these things because I belong to Ciro, you know, and Yvonne Smith, who's a world renowned uh, hypnotist. You know, she does she deals basically with experiencers and does regressions, you know, and helps them with their PTSD and stuff that happens from that. Um, She gets invitations from producers all the time. Uh, are you interested in being part of this show? I didn't know what it was. I, they just said, do you want to be part of the show? They didn't even say what it was or who the <laughs> star was or anything. I said, sure, I'll do it. You know, yeah, why not? So I showed up and and then um, it, I knew it was going to be a big deal because when I showed up, well, first of all, they had us do all this COVID testing. And then they said there was a star attached to the project, but there was secret and they couldn't say who it was. And I thought, okay, something big is happening here. And then I got there and I thought it was going to, I've done these things before where they, it's like a small camera crew and they, it's just, they're trying to sell something to somebody else. Well, when I got there, I knew this is already sold because there were trailers everywhere. There was oh, wow. you know, dozens, <laughs> maybe a hundred tech people everywhere swarming around, directing traffic, you know, where I'm supposed to park. I got there, they were briefing us. They had us set up in this tent and then, uh, yeah, I, I can't tell you a whole lot about the, you know what I'm not supposed to talk about the show, <laughs> other than uh, it was it was interesting, and then you get to meet you know the star of the show, and okay, she's a wonderful person. She really, I know she's had her difficulties, and I I admire people who have picked themselves up, yeah, uh, from you know literally a, a near death or close to death experience, and um, yeah, so I. I I don't know. I could still end up on the cutting room floor, so I'm not going to, you know, hey, cool, until I actually see it on TV, but it's supposed to be in the fall. (laughs) Okay. All right. And uh, you you can't give us any more information on what that's about, huh? Just, well, it's, it's UFO related. That's released already. All right. That's good. She's, her team (laughs) is is investigating. So. Is she personally um, interested in, in UFOs in the paranormal? Okay. All right. Yes, she is. And that that's been released in the uh, in the uh, whatever you call it, press release as well. Okay. So I can I can okay. say that because they've already released it, but I can't really say too much more about it. But OK, uh, yeah, she's other than she's a wonderful person. It was an interesting experience, kind of surrealistic experience. You know, there were other experiencers there, too. And uh, they had a Yvonne Smith type person, you know. OK. And uh I guess I can't really say much more than that, but it'll be really interesting. And I think it'll be good. And uh, I hope I end up, you know, you hear this oftentimes. I hear (laughs) actors say it all the time. I was in the production and then, oh, Oh, I ended up on the editing room floor, you know. Right. I would have been been right there, you know, but they cut me out. (laughs) Yeah. 
So who awesome. knows? Until you actually see it, I don't know. Well, but then, anyway, that was my experience. It was pretty fun. Uh, we spent okay. a whole day and it was fun. You know. We're going to definitely have to look for that. All right. Yeah, on, so, on Peacock, uh, which I, I got to start watching, I guess. I, I didn't even know it existed. Until is is that like a... Uh, it's, there's, I think they're streaming. They're, they're streaming yeah, channel kind of a thing. I think they have a free part of it. And then there's a, a you know, like Peacock a plus, plus or right? something. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> awesome. All right. Uh, anything else? I, we've kept you for quite a long time. And uh, I want to give you some time to... Uh, do any closing statements, but Michelle, was there anything else you wanted to ask? Uh, no, I'm currently looking up the Demi Lovato information. <laughs> okay. And yeah, she, the, took, she took well, the show, I can tell you the show is called uh, Unidentified. Okay. Yep. Yeah. So, so you they've can, got a they've got an article on uh, Variety. Okay. About yeah. it. Excellent. Yeah. Right. So let's let's. I'm gonna keep my fingers crossed that I end up somewhere, even if it's just a little, you know, blip or something. That would be cool to yeah. say I've actually been on it, but yeah. uh, but it's you know there are a lot of people who take this very seriously, and I, I'm glad to see that. You know, I'm glad to see, and you know, some people are uh, you know there's scientists involved. You know, I talked to to Dean Radin. He's a friend of mine, um, and he's the uh, lead scientist at at uh, Ions Institute of Noetic Sciences. I don't know if you've interviewed him or met him. He's a really cool guy. No, uh, that's that organization started by Edgar Mitchell, uh, oh, okay. the NASA astronaut who, you know, unfortunately passed away a few years ago, but yeah, he started that. And um, so, uh, yeah, I've, uh, I've made a lot of interesting friends along the way. And he's, he's kind of, he's more of a parapsychologist researcher, okay. but he, uh, he worked on Operation Stargate uh, during the, you know, the, uh, the, whatever you call it, remote viewing stuff yeah. that they, they did for the CIA and the military. He was part of that. And uh, he's a researcher, hardcore researcher. Okay. But a very open-minded individual. And he actually did a, a blurb for me on the back of Anzar, the progenitor, my book. So oh, okay. He gave All me right. a, blurb, a very funny blurb. He's very, he has a, a wry sense of humor. So <laughs> pretty funny blurb. Yeah, uh, might have to see if we can get him to come on the podcast. It sounds and, like and Jeffrey be... Mishlove is the other guy that uh, okay, uh, he's he does the uh, New Thinking Aloud show. He's interviewed thousands of people, scientists and philosophers and historians and thinkers, and all in the, you know parapsych. He's a parapsychologist, so okay, he, he did a blurb for me too. And I'm friends with Jeffrey, and I've been on his uh, show, uh, you know, maybe four times, three or four times. And uh, he's he's a great guy, too, and very open minded. And there's so many really good people that I've met. You, you guys now I can include in that group now that we've met. <laughs> well, thank you. We're, we're newbies, man. <laughs> we are newbies. Just so no, but you figure our way out. <laughs> you're do, you, it sounds like you're doing great. And I, I enjoy your, the style you guys have and the openness. And I appreciate that. So. Oh, well, thank you. Um, we are very happy to have you on. One last thing I got to ask you, since we are the Michigan UFO sightings and paranormal encounters podcast, do, do you got a direct connection to Michigan in some way? Uh, well, my uh, information about Michigan, maybe that was brought up with our, <laughs> I have a theory about our great lakes and mm -hmm. UFOs being sighted quite a bit over Lake Michigan. That's something I'm digging into. 
and I'm, I'm formulating a hypothesis about this. If I can test it, we'll see. But well, my, my eldest son lived in Michigan before he moved to Dayton. Uh, he lived in Michigan and he is now at Wright Patterson Air Force Base, which of course has Hangar 18. Oh so my there God, we go. Yes. Yeah, That's where so he, the he's taking me on a tour of uh, what do they call it? Uh, B Area B, which is where Hangar 18 was. It doesn't exist anymore, but there is the the secretive buildings, and he was able to get me in there and take oh, me. Wow. I'm not even sure if I'm supposed to be saying this, but anyway. Uh-oh. <laughs> I, I think I can say it because, you know, we, we got through the gate and everything and he, I showed my ID and, you know, but um, yeah, there, there is uh he said, if you, if we, we stopped and we're looking at this building and it looked like a building within a building. And he said, if we stay here too long, people will come out and talk to us. Oh, so there's stuff going on. <laughs> Who knows what's going on there? But um, anyway, so that, that was fun. And he's uh, you know, he lived in Michigan. His wife is from Michigan. Okay. I spent a lot of time in Michigan, like Ann Arbor. I loved Ann Arbor. You oh, know, yeah. I was a That's graduate true. student. We'd go up to Ann Arbor all the time. Oh, yeah, because uh, you went to Bowling Green. I went to Bowling Green sure. State yeah. University. Uh, and and uh, my ex-wife lives in Michigan. So I don't know if that counts or not. <laughs> so exes don't always end up in Texas. As no, sometimes people. they end up in Michigan. Yeah. Yeah, they She's end doing up very Michigan. well. So I'm happy to report she's doing very, very well. Good, good, good. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well. Uh, I think we've kept you long enough and should probably let you go. Um, okay. Well, I appreciate it very much. Yeah. Wayne thank and you Michelle, being, you guys are great. Yeah. Thank you for being a guest. Um, hope to have you on again soon. Michelle, <laughs> any last minute words? No, I appreciate the talk about any literary works. So I oh, look yes. forward to snark three coming out so that we can have a talk once I get a chance to uh, get my hands on some hard copies of snark one and snark two. Well, if you guys, if you guys, uh, I can send you uh, Snark One. I got like three thousand in my garage. So if you <laughs> hey, want, definitely that would send be me, awesome. shoot me your e- your mailing address, and I'll send you uh, each a copy of Snark One. Oh, I would love that. Thank that, you. Yeah, that would be great. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. Okay. Well, with that, ladies and gentlemen, we're gonna sign off, and uh, thank you very much, Bruce. And we will talk to you soon. Wow, Michelle, that was a great interview. That took so many twists and turns that I did not expect. You really got to love the fact that he's an author and a playwright. It just, guy does everything. As soon as I started looking into the books and as soon as I saw any connection to theater, I was like, oh, I got to know more. And now I'm really interested what this June 30th thing is that Anzar was telling him. A massive disruption. Well, let's see. Could it be the report that the government will finally release? I mean, June 10th has already passed by. We know that allegedly now the the reports that I've seen online say the 25th. but Which is the last Friday of the month of June. Exactly. So what sort of extensions are we looking for? Is this going to be like one of my kids asking for an extension on an assignment that they should have turned in and the deadline has already gone past? You know, I just need one more day. One more day. (laughs) Right. Well, they've already leaked some information, but, you know, who's to say? Oh, that could be the carrot. Well, speaking of carrots, before we go here, got to throw a little teaser out there. Be looking for, coming up in July, 
the very first Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters podcast roundtable and panel to discuss the UFO report. This is going to be so cool. We need the report to do the panel. <laughs> yes, we do. So we're waiting for that to so come So that up. assignment needs right. to be turned in. Right. Listen here, Mr. Government Official. Turn in your report so the teachers can read it and grade it. I've got my red pen ready. I, I'm still blown away with the whole conversation that we had with Dr. Solheim. I mean, the connection with the pocket revolution. He's given us some type of a, I don't want to say a warning, but a prediction, some kind of disruption, something on June 30th. Maybe it is tied to the UFO report. And folks, I know I'm getting the look from my husband because he already knows I'm going on Amazon to order some books. Yes, and absolutely, please go to Dr. Solheim's website. It's www.bruceolavsolheim.com, and you can find his books, his comic books, uh, there and on Amazon. Please help support him and show him your love. And he's also one of the guest speakers on Contact in the Desert this year as well. Yes, absolutely. We just touched on that briefly during the interview, but he is going to be a speaker at this year's Contact in the Desert. So along with Terry Lovelace. Along with a lot of really good speakers. A lot of on people. So all right, Michelle, what do you think? Are we done? I think that we are closing it up for the night, folks. All right, everybody, thank you for listening. Thank you for getting the word out there. And remember, keep your eyes to the sky. You have been listening to the Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters podcast. You can reach us at mi.ufo.podcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at mi underscore UFO and join our Facebook group by searching for Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters. So until next time. Join me, George Norrie, for Contact in the Desert Worldwide Virtual UFO Conference, June 25th to the 28th. Contact in the Desert will be an epic weekend of exploration into UFOs, ancient alien civilizations, consciousness, AI, crop circles, and cutting-edge science. More than 130 presentations, 67 speakers, and two extra weeks to view our extraordinary lineup. Get your tickets today at contactinthedesert.com. It's time to make contact. Contact in the desert.com.